Hello. What do you remember about the home or homes you were brought up in? The one that made the greatest impression on me was the Tower Block Council flat I lived in for two years in Leeds in the late 60s. Although it was quite new, it already had some of those characteristics that came to be negatively associated with high-rise social housing. The smelly lift that was often out of order. The way cooking smells from one flat invaded the whole floor. The generally deserted and unfriendly communal spaces. I remember... We had underfloor heating, which soon became prohibitively expensive, and because my mum was trying to get the best value from it, I'd often have to navigate my way round the flat, avoiding standing on the wet clothes lying on the floor to dry. It's memories of housing, in his case pretty grim housing, that are part of what inspired today's guest on Bridges to the Future to write a short but passionate book entitled A Home of One's Own. Why the Housing Crisis Matters. Not only does the book describe vividly what's wrong with the housing situation and the policies that have given rise to it, but it calls for us to rethink our whole approach. If there is to be any chance that everyone, not just the fortunate, have a decent place to live. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Hashim Hamid, who is the author of A Home of One's Own. So Hashim, we always start with the same question, and it's simply this. Why did you choose to write the book? Yes. Thank you for having me on the show, Matthew. I mean, I think for me, it was twofold, really. There was the personal and the professional. The personal was related to the aspects of grim housing that I grew up in in the mid-1990s in Northwest London and the difficulties that we faced there and the overcrowding and moving from one squalor council accommodation to the next the difficulties we faced as young children trying to sort of have a stabilized life at that point. And what that all meant over the years was just something I wanted to reflect upon. And one of the things I talked about in the book was about sort of the mold that was in our house. And you might have seen recently this young child who died in Rochdale because of the poor mold in the house that he was growing up in. So it might have been something that was an issue for me growing up, but actually it turns out it's still very much an issue for many children today. And the professional aspects were related to the fact that I'm now a planning lawyer, predominantly focused on housing issues and housing-related matters. So I thought that this was a real opportunity for me to kind of reflect on the personal, but also marry it up with the professional and speak to these issues in that way. And so that really was what inspired me. And I wanted to make it a very short book so that people can have an opportunity to read it and and engage with it as well. I mean, I was going to come on to this later, but do do you think, Ashi, that the the tragic death of Awa Bishak could be a bit of a turning point? I mean, I I don't know. We thought Grenfell would be a turning point, and in yes. some ways it has been, in other ways it hasn't. But the, you know, anyone who studies politics and policy knows that it can often be unexpected things that, that suddenly shift a debate that's stuck. Do you think that might be the case with our Ishak? I don't know is the short answer, but I hope so, because Ishak, you know, his story is so tragic and so shocking to so many people 
that hopefully it will galvanize a kind of movement of, of where we are. But I'm not so confident because our politics is so sort of completely and utterly dispiriting in the way that it currently is. I'm not convinced that the politicians will act very quickly. This issue of this young boy dying in this way is as much to do with kind of poor housing standards as it is about landlords not being held accountable to the politics that we're currently living in, where our politicians can't affect change in the most meaningful way if a child is dying because the place they sleep is killing them. So I'd like to think that it's a turning point, but I'm afraid with the way things are currently, I'm not so convinced. So I don't know, you tell me if you find this tiresome, but I do want listeners to know a bit more about you. I first came across you, I think, when you were a teenager. You're one of those people that I've observed over the years. You know, you're a remarkable person who's, who's had a remarkable life. But I do think it's important. You've talked a bit about that housing you experienced. But but just tell us about, you know, your journey, because something else you've written a lot about is social mobility. And in some ways, you are an outstanding symbol of social mobility. Yes. I mean, my my own story is, is something I talked about in my first book, People Like Us, What It Takes to Make It in Modern Britain. And I talked about sort of coming here as a young, unaccompanied child refugee at the age of nine, growing up in Northwest London, and the kind of real post-Thatcher major period pre-New Labour that you obviously had a, a big part to play in era. So I really experienced that real-life impact of going from a kind of community that had very little investment to being a beneficiary of Sure Start and the kind of major, major Gordon Brown investment sort of, sort of on tackling child poverty. Those were real political decisions and political investments in, in London, in Northwest London and around the country that made a huge difference to, to my life. My mum came four years after we had arrived. My father had died when I was nine in, in Kenya. And so we were really, you know, newcomers to a country that was going to go through this huge, huge transformation. And then I sort of talked to this issue of then what does it mean to become socially mobile going from there to becoming a barrister, to then becoming an author, broadcaster, and, and what that all means. And in my book, I really do take great care to not sort of suggest that because I've done it, anybody else could do it, and that you could pull yourself by the bootstraps, and if only you were willing to work hard enough, everything would be fine. And that sort of post-Blair and Brown era, we saw the kind of Cameron language of if you do the right thing and you work hard, you're going to succeed. And, and I kind of say, well, actually, it's not that simple. It's far more complicated. Life is a lot more nuanced. And so today, being where I am, considered to be a sort of a top rate taxpayer, to also having been raised exclusively on state benefits, I have to say that in a way, in very short space of time, I have been lucky and unlucky to live the worst and in many ways the best of, of what socially mobile people are meant to experience. So let's go back to housing, to the focus of the book. I mean, there's an awful lot wrong with our housing system. But if I was to ask you, what particularly do you think stands out? What is the most egregious elements of the current failure? Yeah, I think for me, if I was to pick one 
extraordinarily egregious situation that we're in right now is the fact that local authorities who have a statutory duty to ensure that they take care of those people who are ratepayers or otherwise in their local communities have very little power, very few resources, and frankly, a very little wherewithal to fundamentally impact the lives of the most vulnerable. And that involves the fact that the housing stock that was available to local authorities for social housing has been completely depleted to almost destroyed. Many local authorities up and down the country don't even have any social housing on their housing stock register. We are in a situation where many of them, if not all of them actually, I'd suggest, cannot build. They cannot borrow money from banks to be able to build. And then the most horrible part of all of that is that the politicians, the local politicians elected, and this is something that is happening up and down the country, are only interested in ensuring that those who are already on the property ladder do not face any kind of destabilization by virtue of the fact that there might be houses built next to them. And it's one of those sort of really bizarre, bizarre situations of modern life that you will see a counselor on Twitter, on their Instagram, taking a picture in front of a greenfield, proud, and they will say, we stopped the greedy developers from building houses here. So today, you know, it's extraordinary that we have elected members of local government who will stand proud about the fact that they have managed to stop housing development. I mean, just think about that, you know, just think about that, that that is something that they consider to be an achievement. So the most egregious thing is, that, frankly, that social housing is dead. Local authorities can't do much about it. And the people who we elect to help us make a better society are actually proud of the fact that they are obstructionist. It's a complex picture, isn't it, Haji? But I often think about a particular moment, a particular catastrophic moment in the evolution of housing policy. And that was in the mid-70s when Joe Haynes, who was working, I think, for Wilson and then for Callahan, wrote a note which, as my recollection is, he wrote it to Wilson, but then Wilson left office and Callahan, as it were, inherited the note. And the note said that Labour should commit to allowing council tenants to buy their own homes, but on condition that all the money that was raised would then be invested in building new homes. And that policy was then rejected, which would have been a very popular policy, and who knows, could have kept Labour in office and instead, that policy was inherited by Margaret Thatcher. It became her kind of standout policy. But of course, it became detached, the sale of council houses, from the notion of reinvesting that money in new social housing. That was a, I mean, you know, there are so many things that have, have happened, so many mistakes we've made, but that was a pretty pivotal moment, don't you think? Yeah, I think that is definitely a pivotal moment. But we have to be careful that that we do not sort of interpret this based on a revisionist history kind of perspective, because I have really thought about this and I do talk about it in the book. And there are three really crucial elements to the right to buy and that particular policy. The first is you've already picked this up. It was quite popular and we cannot get away from that. It was a popular policy. And the way that Margaret Thatcher approached it was quite simple. If I get enough people to buy their own homes they will be invested in the status quo. 
they will want to conserve the status quo and thereby they will become conservative voters. And incidentally, there were a lot of conservative politicians, including people like Michael Heseltine, who are actually against this policy for various reasons. So it's also important to note that it wasn't a case of all the conservatives were also up for it. Labour definitely did think about it. Labour did want to do it, but rejected it. She picked it up, Margaret Thatcher, and then ran with it for that purpose. The second aspect about then replacing like for like, that was never seriously on the table. That was never seriously considered. It was something that was discussed as a very much an aim to achieve. But the reality was something else, because what you then have is when local authorities were essentially making that money from selling those council houses, sometimes some local authorities were being challenged by central government saying, actually, send that money back to the treasury and not spend it locally. So there was a lot of wrangling politically because the way that a lot of the Margaret Thatcher, and if you look at some of the writing on this, a lot of people talk about how she thought, if I let them keep the money, they might just then use that money to effectively, quote unquote, fight Thatcherism. So there was that element of it that was also crucial to understand. So in a nutshell, that second point is very straightforward. First, you needed to figure out how do we make sure that we reinvest and replace like for like and replace one for one, then go back to the concept of selling. Unless you've bottomed out the principle that you will replace each one that you sell first, there's no point in going through with the selling in any event. And then the third aspect is, is it's not just the right to buy aspect of it or the lack of replacement. It's then what happens afterwards with all that property and all that land and all those council house that was sold off effectively then becoming private landlord housing. And then this is the most egregious part. Then local authorities are faced with a situation where their depleted social housing stock is so bad that they're having to go to the private sector and ask them, can you help us house people who are needy in our community? And guess what? Local authorities are now paying housing benefit to house people in their local community in properties they once owned. That's what's so insane about that policy. So it's not just as simple as we sold off the council houses. No, no, no. We sold off the council houses. We didn't replace them. And then they became a burden on us afterwards. That's the point. Mm. That whole episode has a powerful kind of place in my own kind of political memory. I, I remember in, in the 80s canvassing, and it was literally the case that if the council house had been done up, and people who bought their homes often used to quite ostentatiously do them up because it was a status symbol, as a Labour councillor in the mid-80s, you literally didn't knock on the door. It was so certain that anybody who'd bought their council house was going to be a conservative, that you didn't even knock on the door. And it really wasn't until Tony became leader that that changed. It was only then that you felt you could knock on the door of somebody who had bought and clearly bought their own council house, and there was a, a reasonable chance that person would be a Labour voter. It was it was incredibly powerful. And that links, Hashi, I think, to, a, to another point, which is this is partly about policy, and we can lay the blame at the door of successive governments. But it's also about us. It's also about our attitudes. It's about the fact that 
Britain, along with America, it's like many other unpleasant things the British share with with Americans and not so much with continental Europeans. We see housing as an asset rather than simply a place to live. We see renting as very much second best, whereas, of course, in countries like Germany, it's perfectly reasonable for anybody to rent, perfectly aspirational to rent. So there's something, isn't there, here also about our attitudes and how our attitudes have contributed to the position we're in. I completely agree. And I would go even further and say that this concept of owning our own home and the concept of the Englishman's house is his castle goes back even further than the founding of Fathers of America kind of looking at this issue in their own kind of new country and new home, because that was something that they inherited from us. And so, yes, but what changed that makes this particularly bad today is not so much that people are proud to own their own home and the bricks and mortars. That's not really fundamentally the heart of what is the part of the problem, because I do think that the concept of owning your own home, being proud of your home and being proud of of having a place that you can call your own is, I think, a fundamentally human thing that can sometimes manifest in you owning your own property, but it could also simultaneously manifest itself in you living in a property long enough. If you think about the Swiss, they have such strong security of tenure. Somebody could be living in a rented accommodation for 30 years and be proud of it and actually not even notice that they don't even own the the home. But what really changed for me that is slightly more nuanced perspective on this is the way in which our homes moved from something we were proud of owning and living in to it becoming effectively a pension fund and it effectively becoming part of the inherited wealth, it becoming part of something much more than the place where you lay your head, but actually a cash cow. It's something that you, the moment you bought it and you'd done the kitchen up, you checked how much it was worth. That is slightly different to the concept of being obsessed with owning your own home. Because I think that obsession is a good thing. It's a human thing. And it also means that you're not relying on a landlord who could potentially ask you to leave one day. So it's that concept of you being obsessed with what it's worth and what that means for your pension and for your children's inheritance that is the particularly egregious issue. Because I see that in my planning cases. In the planning inquiries and the public inquiries that I'm doing week in, week out, I'm in Oxfordshire right now doing an appeal in Freeland. You can see the people who turn up and who who do not want development happening in their particular area. They may raise all sorts of issues about flooding and traffic and so on, but actually scratch the surface and actually really see what their concerns are. And all roads invariably for the majority of them, not all of them, I'd say majority of them invariably leads to, my God, you're going to build more housing and therefore you're going to impact the property prices here. What they don't realize is actually with new housing that is desperately needed, this is more likely to help their property prices go up by revitalizing that community rather than affect it. They don't understand that, but that's how they see it. No, it's fascinating, Hashin. It feels as though we suffer from a a particularly malign combination of individualism, which is deep in the English psyche, and but individualism in the context of insecurity. And that's what this story is in some ways, that the individualism is that's just part of who we are and it has strengths and weaknesses. It's part of our kind of national character. But when you add it to this sense that without a big asset behind you, 
you're very deeply insecure, that living in rented accommodation is deeply insecure, that not having a lot of money behind you means you're very vulnerable in a society like ours where it's, it's very tough to be poor. Exactly. A hundred percent. And that is something that isn't just about those individuals. It's about the poor security of tenure in our private rented sector. It's the fact that social housing has been completely depleted. It's the fact that people don't see their pensions as being worth much, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all concepts that then lead us back to the problem of housing. You can't look at housing just about bricks and mortars. It's so much more in this country. So if we turn to this issue of what is sometimes called kind of nimbyism, which you've referred to a couple of times, and and that's an area where you practice law is connected to that. One of the, I thought, slightly kind of depressing parts of your book was that community planning, which I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a great advocate, actually, of, of deliberative democracy. Yes. Of putting people who have different interests together and trusting them to be able to work it out if given the right kind of support. And I think that form of d- democracy is much more powerful than representative democracy a lot of the time. Now, that was supposed to be a part of community planning, that it would really become a forum where supported by experts from local authority, independent experts, those people who had an interest in blocking housing would sit down with those people who needed housing, wanted housing, and they would find a way forward. And I remember in the early days of community planning, there there were stories of communities who had said, okay, you know, we've been asked to build 120 new homes. We don't want to build them where we've been asked to, but actually here's a different idea and it'll lead to 140 homes, but in a way that we can support. And I thought, well, this is hopeful. Your book isn't quite so hopeful about that. It, it, I got the kind of sense from you that, that in the end, community planning is is fatally tilted towards vested interests rather than future interests. Yes, I'm afraid that the concept of local planning and localism act, as it was called in the localism act of of 2011, I'm afraid on balance has failed because what is always the case that it's these concepts and these ideas and these policies are underpinned by a few assumptions, right? And those assumptions include, for example, that there will be solidarity in that community. There will be a solidarity between those who are already on the property ladder and those who are not. And that solidarity will mean that people will be out there thinking, we need to build more housing because our young cannot afford to live like this and we will do our best and we will use these vehicles that the government has helped us. If you think about a similar concept in France, the government in, I was living in France in 2005, the government introduced a law that would enable companies to hire and fire young people within the first year of their jobs to kind of get more companies to hire and get the economy moving. That was completely unacceptable to the vast majority of French people who were out on the streets protesting. But when you saw them protesting, these were people who were retired, people who were older saying, this is outrageous that you're treating our young people like this. And the government withdrew that, even though those policies were not going to affect those older people. That is the intergenerational solidarity that you might see in a place like France. Here, the Localism Act, frankly, which was supposed to be about deliberative democracy as concepts that still exist when you you hear Michael Gove talk about, if only local people want it, with the will of the local people, with the interest of the local people, with consultation with the local people, you hear it all the time. What that means effectively is that local people then are overly represented by a certain age group who own their own homes, often own their own homes outright without a mortgage. And they just stand in the way and they say no to everything. And those young people are being left out in the cold, sometimes quite literally. And so in the beginning, this was a great idea 
But in the end, in practice, I'm afraid it hasn't worked out that way. And then the, without being completely fatalistic about it, in places like Froome, down in Somerset, and places like Malmesbury in Wiltshire, they have the beginnings of an actual idea because they've come forward by actually in Froome, for example, the community got together and bought a piece of land from the council and they're looking to build a bunch of affordable housing on it. In Malmesbury, they were one of the first places to actually allocate sites in their neighborhood plans for housing. So there are places that are keen to make development happen, but there aren't enough of them. And so for me, the fundamental underpinning principle that relied on this being being able to be successful was in relation to this intergenerational solidarity. And I'm afraid because that is not there, the policy and the approach is failing. Now, given that we're talking here about fundamental characteristics of, of our culture and our values, it, it could feel like really this is a council of despair and also the problems of housing are so complex. So Hashi, you know, you're a practical person. What can we practically do and what practically should we do now, given that we're not going to be able to reform this whole system overnight? But what is the one or two things that we should do now which would, would make a difference and could potentially set us on a different road? Yes, I mean, there is some positivity here in the sense that, for example, your listeners might be interested to know that the Church of England, one of the biggest landowners in the country, has taken a major step forward and has compelled its commission and others to look at using a huge number of its land for affordable homes exclusively. And they've already started putting together teams. They've already started making planning applications for major development. And I'm talking about two, 3,000 homes in Essex and other places around the country. That is a great institution in this country, realizing that the lack of affordable homes in this country is an existential crisis to us all and actually acting. And long may that continue. For me, in practical terms, what I would say to people is you have to ask yourself, planning and housing is political and politics it will always be looking at the bottom number. So if you are interested in trying to make a difference at the local level, hold your local councillors to account. Ask them why they are making decisions, turning down developments that should not be turned down. Ask them why they are not doing enough to ensure that more affordable homes are built. Ask them what they're doing to fundamentally fund the planning departments of each local authority since 2010 and since the cuts that we saw in the coalition government, local government budgets have been cut up to 40%. And of course, they can't cut their statutory powers and their statutory obligations. So where the axe falls are those areas that are considered to be surplus to requirement. And that has often met the planning department, planning expertise, which means fewer decisions are being made fewer decisions are coming through and fundamentally they're causing us issues. So if you want to make a practical difference in your local community, get involved. Get involved in local politics, get involved in in your local decision-making processes, hold your local councillors to account, get involved in the planning meetings, get involved in the local plan processes, because that is where the power lies. And that place is currently overrepresented by people with vested interests, but crucially, people who have a lot of time on their hands. Young people don't have enough time on their hands. Young people are busy too much working or busy with something else. So in practical terms, I would say local government, 
is where it's at. And in institutional levels, please look at what the Church of England is doing and follow that approach. That's encouraging and powerful. But but also, Hashi, you know, you're a barrister. You know, I'm a middle-class person with a good job. Middle-class people simply, aren't we part of the problem? And don't we have to accept that? we're going to have to be taxed more on the excess space and property that we have kind of hoarded. So, you know, we're speaking relatively soon after the autumn statement. And I guess there were two things on that, which were kind of maybe a little bit helpful at the margins. Inheritance tax is going to go up and up in real terms because it's frozen. Also, the social care cap has been pushed back a couple of years. So, you know, the price that people pay from hoarding assets is going to go up a little bit more. I mean, there are six, I think I'm right in saying there are 60 million empty bedrooms Yes, in Britain. So don't we also, in the end, need to, I mean, when we talk about the bedroom tax, we associate it, of course, with punitive policies towards people on benefits. But in a sense, we need a bedroom tax for all of us so that our space is somewhat more equitably distributed, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, on that front, I think I completely agree with you. Middle class people like you and I are simply not paying enough. And I saw that I saw that in the, the autumn statement, he talks about we want Scandinavian style public services with Singaporean efficiency. And he just tells you just how much he's completely out of touch to not understand how those two things work. But more importantly, The end of that sentence that he missed out is he wants to say something along the lines of, we want both of those things, but with US level taxation. It's not going to work. You're not going to get the kind of Scandinavian public services with Singaporean efficiency on American style taxation. So that that is is a misnomer as far as I'm concerned. I was glad to see that people like me are going to be paying more taxes, but do I trust them to spend my money on something decent? They'll probably end up spending that money on policies deporting people like me to Rwanda. So who knows? But there are fundamental things about taxing unearned wealth. If your property was bought in 1990 for £20,000 and it's worth now a million pounds, I'm sorry, you did not earn that money. We have to find an equitable way of taxing that. Our council tax system, based on 1991 rates, unacceptable and unsustainable. We need to look at that. Under occupation of properties you just mentioned, a big issue. The case I'm doing right now is to do with a care village for older people who want to move out of their homes and live in a retirement village that was dignified and decent. Part of that, a huge part of that, is getting them out of their big houses that the kids have moved out of and only two or one person is living in them. Under occupation is one of the biggest, biggest issues we're facing. So there is plenty to be done. But I come back to the very simple point, Matthew, which is, is any of this politically palatable? And who is prepared to show the leadership on that? Which brings me to my last question, Ashley, and I hope you don't mind me asking it. But as I say, I've been kind of following your career. And I, I think, I, as I say, I first heard you speak in, you know, maybe your late teens, early 20s. And when I saw you speak, I thought, this is a future political leader. So, Hashi, what are the, what are the plans? <laughs> what are the plans? You might be the millionth person who who's asked that question. I'm a Labour Party member. You'll be pleased to know. I am proud to see, have seen how much Labour has done. But if I'm very frank with you, I don't see myself in politics. I don't see myself in politics because of the fact that our political system is currently just so broken and so full of bad faith 
that, that I just would not be able to function in that. Secondly, I think many of our parliamentarians today are of such poor quality that to think that I have to go into that chamber every day and negotiate with these people and negotiate legislation with these people and find ways of finding common ground and solidarity between all parties and finding a way through the common good, I don't see that because they are all interested in superficial headlines and so how do they keep themselves in post and then finally i also think that you know i look at our political processes and i just think to myself that is the forum if you think about 1997 and you think about that moment where the new labor government was about to come in and you think about the heavyweights of you know people like gordon brown robin cook charles clark you know i can name a bunch of people and then later on the millibands and others these were people like you and peter hyman people who actually used their brains and were interested in finding solutions finding a way forward now i look at the front bench with all due respect to people like Keir Starmer. And I don't see that excitement. I don't see that thoughtfulness. I don't see that real powerhouse of ideas that could one day become policy and therefore transform people's lives. So would I really want to waste my time there or try and do it my best where I am now, writing books, talking to you, but trying to get more houses built and, and crucially also make an income that is worthy of what I think I've earned in this life. So in a nutshell, I'm afraid I'm not really enthused enough or galvanized enough to get involved in politics, but that may change, but not at the moment. Well, I have to say, actually, that although the, the book is in, in some ways depressing, I find your answer to that question, to my question, even more depressing. And I, <laughs> look, we haven't got time to talk about it now, but I think your next book should be about why it is that someone like you has got to the stage where not only do you not want to enter politics, but you think politics is almost unreformable. But look, that's a different conversation. Thank you for writing A Home of One's Own. I read it on one long train journey, and it's short and powerful and a really good way of understanding what's wrong with housing and, and what we need to do about it. And thank you for joining me today on Bridges to the Future. Thank you very much for having me, Matthew. It was a real pleasure. In my fascinating conversation with Hashi, I didn't broach the subject of immigration. Sadly, the story of housing in this country has also often been a story of racism and exclusion. Right now, far from offering asylum seekers somewhere decent to live while we process their claim, we push them into overcrowded camps and then, when these are over full, complain about the cost of temporary housing in hotels. As Hashi says in his book, if we saw our disadvantaged fellow citizens as people like us, we would find their housing circumstances intolerable. But I want to end with a simpler point. As we accept a still overwhelmingly negative story about those who flee to our shores, let me ask a simple question. Doesn't Britain need a lot more people like Hashi Mohammed? Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.